We are uh, we're going to continue uh, with uh, the the names of the Lord, and today we're going to be looking at uh, what we call Jehovah Sabaoth, which means the Lord of Hosts. And I'm gonna I'm gonna open up in uh, in Psalms. I'm gonna read a verse over there. But before that, I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning, uh, I just want to come before you and just give you thanks, God, for just your great mercy that you have. Just you've, you've given it to us. Lord, just thank you, God, for your grace. And I, I fear sometimes, Lord, that I just say those things and probably the... The meaning, the depth of what I'm saying really isn't there. But Lord, just thank you, God, for today. I thank you for the ones that are here, that everybody's made it. Be with those that aren't with us. I know some are out of town, out of state. Uh, there, I know that there's there's people that are you know dealing with illness and things. So, God, we just want to lift them up to you today. And I just pray, Father, that you would just be with each one. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to... Uh, I want to read a verse uh, just real quick um, in Psalms 91 because we're dealing with the Lord of hosts. Now, you think, what, what does that mean? Another way of saying that would be like the Lord or the armies of the Lord, the Lord of his army. And uh, in Psalm 91, in verse 11, this is what he says. He says, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. The Lord is the commander of his host. You know, when you look in the Bible, there's there's different times when it talks about host. Um, you know, it talks about it could be an army of men, uh, such as Abner. He was the commander of the hosts, uh, the armies of, of uh, when Saul was king. It speaks of a a company of angels, and it, it even speaks of as the stars. When we behold those, it talks about the heavenly host, sometimes in in sense of just physical stars in the sky. But the one thing that we need to understand today is this. When he says that he is Jehovah Sabaoth, he is the sovereign commander over all of the hosts. There's not, there's not any army, there's not anything that God is not in control of. And so, he is the commander-in-chief of the heavenly army. Now, what we're going to be looking at, and, and most of the time in the scriptures, when it's speaking of the Lord of hosts, he is speaking of when his people have come up against just what you would call an insurmountable Odds. I mean, where it looks like there is no possible way that we can prevail. When we're so outnumbered, you know, whether it's in numbers or size or whatever it is. And so with that being said, um, let's, I want to turn over and I want to read in, in Joshua, uh, the book of Joshua in chapter 5. In chapter 5. And I'm going to begin at, at verse 10. Now listen to this. This is when Joshua had, uh, they had entered into the promised land. And so here's what it says. I'm going to pick up in verse 10. And it says, while the people of Israel were encamped in Gilgal, it says they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land and the unleavened cakes and the parched ground. And then it says, And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the lamb, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of, of Canaan that year. And then it says, And, and when, Je when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, 
but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the, to the earth, and he worshipped, and he said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, he says, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, you need to keep in mind here that they have entered into the promised land, okay? But in the promised land, there are people that they're going to have to drive out. They're going to have to conquer these people in order to take the cities that God said, I'm going to give you that you're not even going to have to build. I'm going to give you this land that flows with milk and honey. And, you know, the American version of Christianity looks at going into the promised land in a way like this. We're going to go and everything's just all about us. It's all for us. I mean, just blessing upon blessing. And there's no war to be fought. Now, if you're Joshua, think about this. You've got around 2 million people that are you are now the leader of. And now on this day, God has stopped sending manna, right? You're going to start eating of the, the fruit, the produce of the land that you're in. So now you went from every day God is providing manna to how am I going to do this? You're, you're going to have to figure out how am I going to divide up the land. You're going to have to figure out how are we going to take this territory. How are we going to take... Look, he's up against Jericho. He's looking at these walls that look like they may reach to heaven. And then there's a man standing in front of him with his sword drawn... And Joshua says, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, who is that? It is none other than Christ. How do I know that? Because Joshua fell down at his feet and he worshipped him. And it was permissible. It is the Lord Christ. And he says, now... I have come. Folks, let me tell you something. When, when we are advancing, when we are going out as the people of God, we follow the Lord of hosts, okay? We don't go out on our own, but we follow the Lord. He is the one that these, this heavenly host, these this armies that we can't see. And we're going to look at some different things here in a moment. But when we go out and advance, He is our commander, and we're going to see something here in a moment. If you would, turn your Bibles to 2 Kings. We're going to look at a few places, so, you know, get your thumb ready. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 6. And I want you, I wanted to show you something here. Now, in chapter 6, and in, beginning in verse 8, it says, Once... When the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants. Now, I want, I want to just keep something in mind right here. We're going to be looking at the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, in this passage right here. And when you go back and you look at the, all, the, line, all the, the, the lineage of all the kings, of the kings of Israel, there was not one king that ever did right in the sight of the Lord. They were all wicked. They all went after false gods. They all taught their people in Israel to go after false gods. But even in that, in God's sovereignty and in God's mercy and in God's love, he still does good things for them. Now, it says Syria was warring against Israel, and he took counsel with his servants. This is the king of Assyria, and he says, At such and such place shall be my camp. Okay, he says, But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, and he says, Beware that you don't pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. And, and by this he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and he said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? Now here's what's going on. The king of Syria is laying traps. He's, he's going to lay an ambush for the king of Israel. And he's going to start this war and he's going to conquer him. But here you have Elisha, who's the prophet in Israel, and he's sending word to the king of Israel saying, hey, 
Just so you'll know, don't go down there. The king of Assyria is laying in wait for you. So time and time and time again, every time he sends his army out to do these things, God has already warned the king of Israel, and they just don't go there. Well, the king of Syria is thinking, somebody in my own camp is, is revealing my, our secrets. They're, they're, they're spying for somebody else. So here's what they say to him. And one of his servants says, there's no one, Lord, our, our old king. He says, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. And it was told him, and it says, behold, he's in Dothan. And he sent their horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and they surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and he went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And once again, when he says alas, he's basically saying, Elisha, master, we are doomed. We're going to die. He, I mean, you've got to picture this scene. And this thing's got to go. You've got to picture this scene. He, it's just, you picture this guy's got a tent out there, okay? Elisha's asleep. His servant wakes up. He steps outside the tent. He's probably stretching. And he looks up. And he sees all of this army up in, the, in the, the mountains all around him. I mean, they're just camped everywhere. There's horses. There's chariots. Now, you think about this. He sends this multitude, this army out for Elisha, for one man and his servant. If that's you, does fear just engulf your heart? I mean, he, basically, he's saying, Lord, he, he runs and he shakes him. He says, Elisha, wake up. We're going to die. And Elisha, it says, he said, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, if you're the servant, what are you thinking about Elisha right now? My master has lost it. Let me, let me count again. There's me and Elisha, and here's all this army surrounding us. And he says, don't be afraid. Now, I want to ask you something, church. In your life, have you come up against what you would count as an insurmountable opposition? Something that is too big, it's too large. Problems, struggles, anxieties, depression, all of these different things that you come up and, and, and fear strikes your heart. I mean, that's where this servant was at. Fear had struck his heart. He says, Lord, we're going to die. And he says, don't be afraid. There's more with us than there are with them. And look what happens. And Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, Please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Folks, these are the things that we as believers need to understand and need to know this, that, what, that the things that goes on, the spiritual warfare that goes on around us on our behalf. The things that we can't see with our physical eyes, we need to know that they are in place. Even though that servant could not see that heavenly host, that heavenly army of the Lord camped all around the armies of the Syrians. And Elisha says, Lord, let him see. Open his eyes up. That is my prayer for us today, that our eyes would be open to know who we are and who we serve. We serve the Lord of hosts. He is on our side. And so, church, listen, when it looks like everything is against you, no matter what is standing in front of you, that man 
that, that Joshua had seen. He says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And he says, no, but I am the, the Lord of hosts and I have come. I am here. That ought to give you such assurance and such peace to know that the God, the, the God of these armies, the God of the heavenly host, He is present and He is on our side. Look what He goes on and does here. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. And he struck them with blindness in accordance to the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is this is not the way. He says, And this is not the city. He says, Follow me and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. He led him into Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. And as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O oh Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Now, now fear is in their heart. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, he says, Father, should I strike them down? He says, shall I strike them down? And he says, no. He says, you shall not strike them down. He said, would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? He says, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Is that incredible? You want to talk about God being in control? Not only does he show the servant, the, the heavenly host in the mountains, but then he strikes blindness to the enemy and he leads them down to Samaria and he feeds them and they send them home. God, listen, church, I'm telling you, God is in control. He is in control. We just sang that song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. One of the lines in there talks about the Lord Sabaoth. Sabaoth, what we're talking about right here today. If you would, turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 19. Just a few pages over. Second Kings chapter 19. I do want to back up and I'll just kind of go through this briefly for time's sake. Chapters 18 and 19 are basically dealing with... Uh, uh, King Sennacherib, of the king of Assyria, has come down. He has conquered nation after nation after nation. And now, basically, it's Israel's turn. They're, they're in the next spot to be conquered. And so Sennacherib shows up, and he's going to attack. And you can start over there, basically, in chapter 18, 13. And then, look, in, in verses 15 and 16, I'm not going to really read all this, but what you see is you see fear grip Hezekiah. Sennacherib has come out. He's camped outside the city of Jerusalem and all the, you know, the land of Judah. He's come with a great army. And so what, is, what does Hezekiah do? Well, he doesn't do good at first. He panics, and what does he do? He tries to appease the enemy, okay? So what does he do? He gives him all the gold and all the silver that he had. I mean, he was he's stripping it off the, the the gold that was overlaid. I mean, just the beautifying of his ha house and the temple, and he and he's given this to the enemy. Now, I want you to understand something, folks. When we have these these odds that come against us, we have these enemies that come against us. They're going to come with with I mean, vicious threats. They're going to come and they're going to they're going to tell you if you don't do this, we're going to do this, and I'm going to tell you we'll put you in prison. We'll do this. We'll do that. And so much of the time. The church as a whole has just took a big step back and bowed the knee to him. What am I talking about? What happened to public what happened to, to prayer in public school? What happened to that? Somebody come up and threaten some stuff? And what did the church do? The church took a took a step back, didn't they, or two? Abortion, gay rights, all these things. You know what? You know what the church is more afraid of, and I'm talking about as a whole in Christian circles in America. Do you know what I hear of why churches can't just really say what they want to say? Well, Lord help us, we'll lose our tax exempt status. They're going to take that from us if we we do the right thing.
How do you think battles are won? We've got an election coming up that if one candidate gets it, I'll just tell you this, one is actually worse, is more wicked than the other, okay? The more wicked one is completely for abortion all the way to coming out of the womb. And that candidate wants to do away with all manner of stuff that we value in America. Do you know where the fastest growing Christian church in the world is going on right now? Used to it was China, but and, and, and folks listen to me. As I give these what I hear, I just have to assume that these are accurate. Christians, people coming to Christ is growing more rapidly right now in the Middle East. You know, where all the Muslim terrorists are, right? But here in America, we're more worried about losing all of our rights, our freedom of speech, our rights to, to own a gun or this or that. I want to ask you a question. Now, I'm, I'm not, I'm for being able to keep all of our rights. But it, it seems to me that where the church grows the most rapidly is in the most persecuted places in the world. And I'll tell you where it's not growing. It's not growing in America. Not only is it not growing in America, but unless we can just really make it exciting, it's not even worth really coming all the time. But yet, where it's most persecuted, where the people have the least amount of rights of anybody in the world, it seems to be growing in leaps and bounds. Why is that? Well, I'm going to tell you why it is. Because there's believers out there, there's Christians that are advancing the kingdom, they're advancing the gospel because they believe that the Lord of hosts is their commander. And they're not going to fear so much. They're going to use strategy as God leads them. But they're going to conquer because they're going to tell people the gospel when they've been told, if you do this, we're going to kill you, we're going to kill your children. And they will not keep their mouths shut. But over here in America, we can't even agree on what Bible to use. We've got important things to discuss over here. Do you kind of get where I'm at a little bit? There's something really a lot bigger than the, what we've made Christianity out of. Okay? Now listen to me. I'm not, I'm not trying to be this mean guy, okay? In verse 20, this is what Sennacherib says. There's a, kind of some questions. He says, uh, he asks a question. He says, well, let me back up. Rabshakeh said to them, he says, say to Hezekiah, Rabshakeh was like a general for King Sennacherib. I mean, that was a title, I believe. And he says, say to Hezekiah, he says, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? He said, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? You know what, you know what he's saying? He says, Hezekiah is telling you, let's trust in the Lord. He says, do you think mere words are, are a way to fight against me? Listen, the very sermon that I'm preaching today, there's power in it. Because it is God ordained. Not that I am this great guy, but these are the words of the Lord. And I'll tell you this, no matter what lies before us, we are to trust in the Lord. We are to look to Him as our commander-in-chief. And we are to advance the gospel. But he says, he asks the question, he says, in whom do you now trust? Church, let me ask you something. In whom do you trust? Who do you trust? Do you trust your ability? Do you trust that the right candidate is going to give you all your rights back and we can make America great again? Is that what you're trusting in? Really? I hope not. Folks, I'm just going to shoot straight with you. I don't care which one of those get in. I mean, it doesn't matter which one gets in. It ain't going to be good. I'm just telling you. And if you think it is, just tell me about all the promises that every president has promised. But they, they didn't do it. We're always just like, we're just like the dumbest people. They, you said you, you know, really? Obamacare? It's going to help everybody out afford insurance, right? 
Anybody having to pay three times as much this year coming up? Folks, these people just want in office. They will tell whatever to get in office. Now listen, we skip on down. We look in uh, verse 23, and Hezekiah's, I mean, uh, Sennacherib is saying, come now. He says, let's make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. This Rabshak is speaking. He says, let's make, a, let's make a, a wager here. He says, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. Now, when you're talking about military strength in the Old Testament, it was based on how many horses you had. Um, I was talking to Boyd the other day, and in Jeremiah it gives a little passage, and it says, if you run with the footmen and they've wearied you, what will you do when the horses come? Well, the footmen was the first line of, uh, of military, and they were out there running, you know. They were kind of expendable. We know we're going to lose a lot of those guys. But when the horses came, the chariots, that was the military strength. And so here's what the king of Assyria is saying. Oh, let's make a wager. We'll give you 2,000 horses. Do you have enough guys to even put on them to fight with us? You see what they're saying? They're saying, you ain't got a chance. What are you trusting in some words that Hezekiah is telling you? And then he goes on. You get over here in, uh, in chapter 19, and what we see is we see Hezekiah finally humbles himself under the Lord. He begins to, to, to pray and, to, and to, to seek, you know, Isaiah to pray. And then we skip down to verse... Um, we get down to verses uh, 10, and this is what it says. It says, um, it says, You shall speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. He says, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Now, this is coming from the enemy. It says, Now, listen, listen to that closely. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. When you read this account, like in Isaiah and in Chronicles, there's a phrase that isn't found here. When he talks about all of the nations, he goes on here, and look what he says. He says, Behold, he says, You've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? It says, Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my father destroyed, Gozan, Haram, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. He says, where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Seraphim, the king of Hena, and the king of... I what he's saying is, were any of the gods of those nations able to deliver you, I mean, to deliver them out of my hands? And then when you read the other accounts, they'll say this, who is your god that he should deliver you out of my hand? That's the question. You talk about being bold in the face of God. And what does Hezekiah do? Hezekiah prays. He received this letter from the hand of the messengers. He read it. Hezekiah went into the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. He says, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and they have cast they're gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Let me tell you something about the Assyrians. When the Assyrians were coming to attack you, and I don't know what you've got in your mind, like they're sitting back with catapults and bows and arrows and stuff like that there were cities there were villages that would commit mass suicide when the assyrians were coming you think well why, why would they do that because the assyrians didn't just kill people they would skin people alive and they would stake them to the ground so that the buzzards and all the you know whatever would come and just eat on them until they died so when the assyrians were coming Many a people wouldn't stand and fight 
they would just say it's better off that we kill ourselves and go through that. We're talking about a, a, an incredibly wicked, wicked enemy. Do you think Isaiah is kind of scared? Absolutely. He knows what he's, they've done. But what does Hezekiah do? This is what the people of God do. Listen, church, there's going to be things that come up against us. And I'm, I'm just going to tell you again, I mean, I've been preaching this for 10 years or better now. Our, our country is getting worse. I believe the judgment of God is on our country. It's getting worse. It's nothing to panic about. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a reality. There's an awareness that, wow, that things could get really bad. But in that, the people of God don't run around like a child with, you know, screaming and hopping around. And, you know, you finally got to grab him and say, I need you to be still and tell me what happened. No, the people of God, they look at these things. We're like Daniel. When they said, if you no more praying for this month, no more praying to any God. You can't pray what Daniel do. He went right to the window and he prayed again. They told the three Hebrew children, they said, nobody can, for this time, you've got to fall down and worship this great image. And if not, we'll put you in the furnace. And everybody looked around. I mean, you know those guys that keep their eyes open during prayer time? They're looking around. They're like, hey, there's three guys standing up. And you know what they said? And the old King James that read like this, they said, oh, King, we're not careful to answer you in this matter. They said, our God will deliver us, but if not, we will not bow down to your image. You know what they're saying? We don't even got to think this one over, King. You do what you feel like you got to do, but we will tell you this, we will not bow. We will not bend the knee to that image of yours. You're not God, and we're only bowing to him, so you do what you must. We believe our God can, we believe he will deliver us, but if not... God's God. He's sovereign. You do what you think you got to do. That's what they were saying. So what happened here? How's this story end? Well, after prayer and everything, and Isaiah sends him a message. In verse 32 of chapter 19, it says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city. He won't even shoot an arrow there, or he won't even come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. He says the same way that he came, the same way he's going to return. He'll not come to this city, declares the Lord. If the Lord says he's not coming in, if he says he's not shooting an arrow, he's not going to do it. And he says, for I will defend this city to save it. Now listen to this. I will defend this city to save it for your sake. No, he didn't say that. He said, for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Now listen to this. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, <laughs> these were all dead bodies. Remember Sennacherib, man? He's so bold and mighty. He, I mean, who... Who is this God that shall deliver you out of my hand? Have the gods of all these nations been able to deliver them out of, out of our hands? He says the same is going to be with you. Don't trust in this God. Your God will not. I mean, you talk about a boast of boasts. But in one night, the angel of the Lord goes to the camp and destroys 185,000. And then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, he departed. He went home. He went just the way God said he would. And he lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, you know, the one he worships, it says, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his other son, reigned in his place. Who is our God? That's our God. Who's going to deliver us? The Lord of hosts. The commander-in-chief of the armies of the living God. That is our God. If you would, turn with me. I'll read another one to you. Turn over to... Uh, 
Go to go to Second Samuel five twenty four, or chapter five and twenty four is where we're going to get to. But go to turn to Second Samuel chapter five. David is is fighting against the, the Philistines. Now listen, it says now when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel. It, oh, I'm sorry, this is chapter five, verse seventeen. It says, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it, and he went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come, and they'd spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, he said, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. David came to Baal Perazim. And David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. Now, I want you to just, listen, just see the, 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 the way that it's always done. Hezekiah prayed. Jeremiah, I mean, Joshua's praying. David is praying. Shall I take them? Shall I pursue? Shall I go up against them? He says, go, for I'm with you. And then when the battle's won, he doesn't go around saying, look what I've done. I was able to defeat my enemies. No, he says, the Lord broke through on them like, like a, a flood breaking out on them. Just like just devoured them. But look what happens next. And it says, in the Philistines, they left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away, and the Philistines came up yet again, and they spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, and he says, and this is what the Lord says, he says, you shall not go up. He says, go around to the rear of them and come against them opposite the balsam trees. Now listen to this part. He says, and when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. We see in places where the Lord allows people to see this host, this heavenly host. We see places like here where they can hear. There's marching in the tops of the trees. He says, when you hear that, it's time. Do you know why it was time? Because the Lord was marching. The Lord was moving forward. Anybody ever heard of a, a missionary back in World War II? There's a, a lady named Darlene Rose. If you've never heard that testimony or read that book, I'd encourage you to get it. It is a good read. She got married at a, at a young age. She was like 18 or so, 19, and her husband was real young. They got married, and they both felt called to the mission field. And as right, soon as they got married... Uh, he had to go. She hadn't been able to get her, her visas or whatever it was to be over there. So the first year of their marriage, they weren't even together. I mean, he's there, and it's over in uh, uh, New Guinea. That's where they were at. Well, kind of make a long story short, she finally gets over there. Her and her husband are reunited, and they're only, they're only together for a couple, maybe two or three years. And that's when World War II broke out. And the Japanese took over New Guinea. And they took all these people and these missionaries and such, and they made them prisoners of war. They separated them. She never got to see her husband again. He, he died of dysentery or something. It's, it's, some of it's tragic. It's really hard. But during this time when they were allowed to still be in their villages and stuff and the wars going on, before they were actually taken as prisoners of war, but now the men had been taken, okay, she said, everybody's starving. I mean, there's villages everywhere, and, and it's, it's rough. And she said, we would have just enough food. And all they left them with, they left the women and the sick and the elderly men that really you know, couldn't benefit nothing. They weren't really a threat. And she said, in her hut, she said, you know, th there was times that people would come and they would raid them, you know, and, and you know, try to you know steal their food and such. And she said, you know, one time she said, I thought I recognized one of the young men, and it was a, a young man that she had been discipling or had been in her class. And and she thought she recognized him, but she wasn't sure. And so anyway, it was sometime after that, she said we would you know pray that oh you know please God keep him away. We've just got enough. Well, you know what we need. And she said she started noticing the her and the people. She said out in the edge of the woods, she said. We, we could see them. They were at the edge of the woods, she says, but, we, but they never came back and attacked. 
She said they would see him many times, but she said they never came back and attacked their, their little hut. And years later, when she was in, in, in prison or whatever, she ran across the young man that she thought she had recognized. And she asked him, she said, was that you that raided our village? And he was ashamed, and he said, yes. And, and she said, why did you do it? And he said, we were starving. She said, he said, we didn't want to do it. She said, but our people were starving. And she says, well, we saw y'all after that many times in the edge of the woods. She said, but you never came back. And she said, why? And he said, we couldn't. And she said, what do you mean you couldn't? He said, you had those, those giant men dressed in white all around your, your hut. We, we couldn't come back. We were too afraid. And she said, what giant men? They couldn't see them. But the men that was out there could see them. Now, I'm just telling you this. I see no reason for this woman to make that up. So I just have to take her at what she said. But I will tell you what I do believe. I do believe we have God's heavenly host that's around us. And I'm not trying to get all... The problem with teaching on something like this is we got so much charismatic nut jobs out there that take this stuff to a place it should never be. You know, it's like, I'm going to put this ceramic angel here and here, and it's going to protect my home. Folks, that's a piece of ceramic. And it don't even fit the description of an angel in the Bible anyway, Okay. Probably just a form of idolatry. But I will tell you this. Our God is the Lord of hosts. He is the one who commands his angels. He is the one who commands the armies of the living God. In in John, in John chapter four. John, in 1 John, I'm sorry, in 1 John chapter 4, John has written to these, this group of believers here because false teaching ha- has come into the church there. And, and it's being taught that um, basically, um, you know, anything that's made up of matter is evil. So all matter. So they're teaching things like Jesus didn't wasn't ever really here. He only appeared to be real because if he had a real body, then his body would have been sin and that would have been evil. So he only appeared like that. And anyway, this teaching kind of went around that there was two ways that you could look at it. This body's evil, so you got to punish it, you know, because it's so evil. It's just like punish yourself until you drive the evil out. It's kind of like what Martin Luther was trying to do. And the other side of that was, um, well, this body's evil. It's not going to heaven anyway, so let's just do what we feel like we want to do. It was just a, sin, a license to sin. doesn't matter what we do with this body because God saved the, the inside part anyway. And, so, and basically what was happening was if, if there was a pressure being put on the church that if you didn't go along with that, they'd exclude you. And so John's writing to him, and he starts off, and he says, I want you to know that Jesus, that they say wasn't real. He said, I was an eyewitness. I handled him. I touched him. I'm telling you, he was real. He really was here. And he said, I want, you to, I want to write to you that your joy may be full. In chapter 5, he says, I want to write to you that you know that you have eternal life. But in there, in chapter 4, he says this. He starts off and he says, Beloved, he says, don't believe every spirit. But he says, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. He says, there's many false prophets that have gone out into the world. And this was in the church. And he's encouraging me. He says, listen, don't believe everything that they're trying to teach you. You know what we taught you. And if it's not lining up, they're false prophets. And he says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. From what I just told you, that will help you understand that. Because what happens so much of the time, you see these guys on TBN and such, and they go, Jesus came here. Well, man, they must be of God because they said Jesus came here. Okay, what he's fighting against is that teaching that Jesus wasn't really here. Okay, he just only appeared, and he was, he was, that's what he's talking about there. But he goes on, and he says this. He says, Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus, or every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. He said, This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And listen to this. He says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Now, I want you to know something, church. I don't know what you individually or in particular may be going through. 
But if you are a born-again, believing Christian, and you've got these odds that are against you that are so, you feel so outnumbered, you, they look big and you feel small, I want you to know that no matter what that enemy is saying, no matter what they're shouting in your ear, that you're not worthy, you're not this, all that, I want you to know if you are in Christ, He is in you, and He is greater than anything out there in the world. Do you, do you follow me? He is the Lord of hosts. He Listen, these battles that we so-called win... We go out and we win these battles. No, he actually wins those battles. We get to come along for the ride. He uses us as instruments in his hand, as vessels, to go out and do this work. But make no mistake, when battles are won and, 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 and strongholds come down and we're able to advance and, and triumph over these things that we felt like we could not do, know for a surety it is the Lord of hosts that we are following and delivering and giving us the victory. Now, in Romans 8, I'm going to finish here. In Romans 8, in verse 31, he says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, what things is he talking about? Well, we go through the book of Romans, and we talk about how that all men are sinful. Everyone is lost. Nobody's seeking God. But God's righteousness has been revealed. We read about how God justifies us, how he saves us by faith, how he imputes righteousness to us, how that we were dead in Adam, but we're alive in Christ. And then he comes to this chapter 8, and he says this in verse 28, and he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Isn't that an incredible passage right there? Now listen to that. All those things we can say has already happened in the believer's life except one. We're sitting here right now. We're not glorified yet. But in God's view, it's an already done deal. And then he says, we'll pick back up, and he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you, who can be against you? Do you, do you get that? If you know Christ, he's for you. He, listen, how do we know he's for us? He, didn't, he, he did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. The greatest trade-off ever. You didn't have anything. There was nothing you could present to God and say, because of this, I, I, I deserve to be in your presence. And I'm going to tell you this today, if you're sitting there, and I always use it like this, but you're going to stand before this holy God someday, and you're going to say, because of this, I think I deserve to be in your presence. And if it's your church, if it's your baptism, if it's your, your so-called good works, if it's any of these things, I'm sorry, the words you're going to hear is, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. But when you stand before him, and you say, I didn't have anything to offer, but, but you gave your son that I might have life. And that's where all my confidence is. Enter thou into the presence, into the joy of the Lord. But he says, he didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then he asks the question, he says, who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's, who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who was raised? And he's at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Now I want to ask you something, church. Do you know the Lord? Do you know that you know the Lord? And if you do know him, why are you walking around 
listening to those voices accusing you, saying, you know what you've done? You know where you've been? You know where you've failed over? You're going to pray this again? You're going to ask God to forgive you again? Haven't you asked Him like 3,000 times and you're still falling on your face? And you start listening to that and you start believing it. My question to you is this. Who is going to bring a charge against God's elect? Do you know what he's saying? It's God that justifies. Do you know what it means to be justified? God looks at you forever as though you've never sinned. The accuser comes. You know you've done this. Boy, the head drops. And you've done this, and you lied about that, and you kept doing this and that. And, and then you start saying, there's no way I'm a Christian. I feel condemned. We say that all the time. He says, who, who can condemn you? Who, who, what do you say? Who can condemn you? Who gets condemned in life? You know who gets condemned? Those that sin. Those who sin and don't turn to Christ. That, those are the ones who are condemned. But look what he says. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. What does he mean? He, he died in your place. He died for your sins. The penalty of sin is death. Somebody is, one of two people is going to die for your sins. Either you or Christ. And I want you to know that if Christ died for your sins, He didn't only just die for your sins, but He rose again, triumphing over sin and death. And in that, He justified you. And listen to this, not only that, but He's at the right hand of God, and, he, and, he, and He's indeed interceding for us. You know what that means? Right now, right now today, while you're being charged and you're being accused and all of these things and you're trying to be condemned, Christ is right there with the Father. And the Father looks at Christ and He says, Father, not on this one. Not on this one. Do you get that if your God is for you, who can be against you? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Oh, how many times have you said it? There's no way that God could love me. Somehow we think that He loves us when we're out there in sin, but no way can He love us now. There is no possible way that my children could ever do anything that I would not love them. I may be furious. I may be angry. I may be, you know, a lot of things. And sometimes that's what your kids see in you. They think, man, my dad's just mad all the time. Sometimes he's angry because he's wanting the best for you. And you're a knothead. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? I'll just answer that for you. No one, nobody, no how, no way. And then he asks a series of things. Shall tribulation? Oh, I'm going through hard things. God must not love me. Quit listening to Joel Osteen. Okay? And anybody who runs in his circles. Okay? Yeah, he's a nice little fluffy guy, but he's a heretic and he's wrong. Okay? Shall distress? What about persecution? Surely persecution shouldn't come upon the people of God. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus was persecuted all the way to a cross. Persecution for Christ's sake just simply ought to make you jump up and do a happy dance. That's what Peter did. He said, we've been counted worthy to suffer for His name. He's just simply saying, hey, you're worthy to be persecuted for my name's sake. And he says this, he says, what about famine? What about nakedness or danger or sword? God's people, that's, that does not sound like a good life to me. 
And I read my best life now, and it was, that part was not in there. As it is written, for your sake, this is us speaking, for your sake. Remember what he says, I'm going to do this, not for your sake, but for my sake, for my name's sake, for my glory. You're mine, I'm going to honor me by fighting for you. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I want you to know something. We read, we read stories back then about how God showed up, and, and he did it in, in, in amazing ways. We see the Lord of hosts at work. We see his, his host. We see that at work. But I want you to know that he doesn't always come through the tops of the trees. He doesn't always do this in the mountains where we see the chariots of fire all around waiting to destroy at his command. No, sometimes he says, we, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. I want you to know something. If God's purpose and his plan for you is for you to die at the hands of an enemy, that God would be glorified. And you say, what are you talking about? How can God be glorified if his people are killed like that? It does something to God's people when people are telling you, you recant, you deny Christ, or we're going to run over you with a steamroller. And they smile at them and they say, we're not going to denounce Christ. We're not going to renounce our faith. Do what you may. And as they're doing this, they're singing praises to God. You, don't, you think I'm making that up? Those are true stories. And you know what it does to other Christians? I mean, a, a, just a fire of courage just wells up in them. And then all of a sudden when God's people are courageous and they start advancing and saying, you just put me in line next. And more people start getting more courage. Do you know what you know is going on then? You know that you're following the Lord of hosts. For your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. No matter what comes against us, we are more than conquerors because the Lord of hosts lives and abides in us by his Holy Spirit. He says, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. There's no power. There's nothing too high, nothing too deep, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God, He is the Commander-in-Chief. There is no power that can come against his people that God wouldn't allow. And if he does allow, then he has a purpose. He has a plan in our life or in our death for his name's sake. I wish we could pray today and we could say, Lord, open our eyes and let us see what's all around us. And I don't know if he, I, you know, I've heard the story of Darlene Rose and I really don't know of any others. But I want you to know whether we can see him with these physical eyes or not. I'm telling you that the Lord of hosts is in control. And Have you thought about the times when you just didn't know how you came out of something? There was a, a wreck or, you know, something like, I mean, I, was on, you know, I died on the operating table. I don't know how. And people were like, we don't even know how you started breathing again, you know. Hey, I'm going to tell you something, man. Until God's through with your life here, there ain't no power can take can take you away. No power that can take you away. Worship team can come. I'm going to pray. Father, Lord God, this morning, I'm glad, I'm thankful that you have reminded me of these things. Gosh, Lord, I feel like I was preaching to myself. Let us look to you, the Lord of hosts, the captain, the commander-in-chief of the armies of the living God. When David went to fight Goliath, he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? 
who defies the armies of the living God. Lord, let us look at them. We just keep a straight face. We're not going to speak unless you tell us to speak. We're not going to go until you tell us to go. But when you do, we're going to open our mouths and we're going to march forward, Lord, only by your grace. God, outside of that, we are, we are scared. We are frail. We are fragile. We are weak. We are but dust. But in Christ, when we go in that, that our strength, in the might of the Lord, then we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. In Jesus' name, amen.